Let's turn to Hebrews 10. Turn to Hebrews 10. Piggybacking off of that uh, catechism question, leading right into where we're at. Let's go to Hebrews 10, and we're going to pick up at verse 12. Let's read verse 12 down to 31. And Lord willing, today I'm going to walk down through verses 23 to 31. But just help us to get the overall flow and context. We're going to go back to verse 12. Picking up here, chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, verse 12 down to 31. Follow along as I read. But this man, remember, he's referring to Jesus Christ, his high priestly work, etc., etc. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and into their minds, will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies watched with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us Consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sober punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy of who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. As I said just a moment ago in regards to the Baptist Catechism, question number 90, we're in our second message of really what's dealing with the Christian's experience. Being justified through Christ alone, by faith alone, and having received the promise of the new covenant, having God's law written upon our hearts and our minds, we move forward in our Christian life 
and we're giving practical steps of how to remain in the pathway with Jesus Christ, how to protect this precious gift that we have been given. It's interesting that among the last three recorded prayers of our Lord Jesus during His earthly ministry, we find that the Lord Jesus shared a great concern for this church, us. This church being written to in the first century, us today, who have been given newness of life, who have been granted the blessings of the new covenant, to overcome and to persevere. John 17 records, many of you know this prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It records very well. It captures some of the concerns that Jesus had for his church that was remaining here in their pilgrim journey. This prayer oftentimes is referred to as the overcomer prayer. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer, one of the last, before he left and descended back on high to be at the right hand of the Father. But it's also identified by many as the overcomer prayer. And when I share with you just a few clauses from that prayer, you understand why it's become known as that. He begins in verse 9. I'll just read it. Don't turn there. Father, I pray for them. He's talking about them, this first century church that we're reading about in Hebrews. He's talking about us. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. They're still going to be here. And I will come to thee. He's going back to the Father. Holy Father, listen to the concern. Keep through thine own name those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then he goes down to verses 15 and 17. Beautiful prayer, exhibiting this concern that he hopes, he prays, he longs that we will overcome. He's given us his spirit. We have professed him, Lord. The people that were around him as he's praying this in us today, listen to his concern. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, mature them, grow them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And here's the ought to be an exceptional blessing to you this morning. Not only was he praying for those who had been saved during his earthly ministry, but he goes on to verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, meaning these that are right here, but for them also which shall believe on me, through the preaching of their word. Through the preaching of their word. Their gospel message they're taking out. That's you, friend. You see, in this overcomer prayer that Jesus is praying for you, He understands what? That in your Christian experience, there are going to be pressures upon you. There were going to be pressures upon this first century church to begin to doubt the validity of the gospel. That through Christ alone, by faith alone, in His once for all sacrificial atoning blood alone, can we be made right and justified with God forever. He knew that there would be men that creep in unawares that would challenge His gospel message, His crowning covenant work on the cross. And so He's praying to the Father, keep them, sanctify them, guard them, help them in their Christian experience, Keep preserved unto the end. And then here we come to Hebrews chapter 10. What has he been doing, beloved, up until this point? He has been teaching them, discipling them in the gospel message. And he comes to chapter 10 and he began in verse 19, we observed in our first message dealing with our Christian experience. We observed that in verse 19, 
He is exhibiting the same concern of the mind of Christ for his church who's still in the world. Who still, as we just are going to learn about in Romans 6 and 7, are, are made up of spirit and still unsanctified flesh. And as Christ understood, and as the inspired writer of Hebrews understood, many believed he was a, a preacher, he went around, he planted churches, he came along, he shepherded churches, as we're seeing in this letter, he shared a great affection for their well-being, for their growth. He understood that we at times could be fickle, and we can grow weak, and there's things that can cause us to begin to doubt the gospel's really true. Or, we begin to think that we can change the gospel that he's been teaching in Romans, I mean in Hebrews 1 through 9. That we can add to it or we can conform it to our own cultural uh, likings of the day. And so he began in verse 19, if you recall, as part of the introduction, to bring forward the dignities, the honors, and the blessings that they had in their connection with Jesus Christ verses 19 down to 20, and then in 21, he said, remember who he is? The high priest that we have over the house of God. And then you remember, we didn't get all the way through it last week, but he began in verse 22, and then we're going to pick up in 23, to give them and to point to them some practical, fundamental things to do in order to help persevere unto the end. And so he was given us as fickle, weak Christians who are hanging on by the faith that's been given to us of the cross and the hymn of Jesus Christ. He's given us things that we can do. So beloved, please let us open our ears and open our eyes and confess at the very forefront as we did in our opening prayer, O oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're recognizing that you are God and we are but man. Give us our daily bread. O oh, Father, give us what we need. Because we are weak and we are dependent upon you. And so as we come into the instruction manual for the New Covenant, New Testament, Church of God today, let us just pay special attention to what it's telling us. Because friend, all of us, all of us on these very basic steps can begin to minimize their importance. And it could lead to us drifting away. So we're going to pick up right here at verse 23. You remember in verse 22, as he was giving us these basic instructions, he said, draw near to God. You've been given access to God through Jesus Christ in a new and a lively way, a better way. You no longer have to go through the high, you don't have to be on the outer courts of the temple anymore. You can go directly to God. You don't need a parent. You don't need a pastor. You have Christ. And so come to God, draw near to him. And he gave instructions of how that drawing near ought to look. Don't do it with hypocrisy. Do it with a true heart. Do it with full assurance of faith that you really believe his gospel is true. Sprinkle your heart by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and purge your evil conscience that he has saved you. He has set you apart. He has sanctified you. And remember, as AJ said in Romans 6 today, through the pure waters of baptism, it's pure because there is a true repentance of faith. An impure baptism is one that's void of saving faith. Okay? So we come to verse 23. And he gives, he's still giving these instructions. He tells you, Christian, he told them, hold fast the profession that you have made. 
Hold fast the profession of your faith. Let's look at verse 23 and consider first the duty. Let us then consider the manner in which we're to do this duty and also the motive or the reason that He gives us to do this. All being connected in a golden chain to help you persevere unto the end in face of all of the pressures that come on us as Christians. A lot, increasingly so from the outside around us, but most of the time from within us. That's what all these are intended to do. He comes and He says, hold fast. Well, what, what are we to do here? Well, the duty is to hold fast the profession that we made. What profession? The profession that's been outlined in Hebrews 1-9. through 9. All of the ways of the Gospel. All of the truths that are connected to the Gospel. Remember, these first century Jews who were created out of Judaism, they had this minister come and preach to them the true Gospel. That no longer do you have to settle for the shadow because Christ, the promised Messiah, He's the substance. And through His blood you are redeemed. You are made perfect with God. Believe upon Him. Put away your dead works. Remember chapter 6. Stop trusting in your dead works. Now hold fast to that profession. Hold it as it's your greatest treasure that you've ever been given in this life. Because there's going to be many things that are the spiritual enemies of Christ's kingdom that are going to come along sometimes subtly, sometimes brazenly nowadays, to strip away from you that truth, that profession that you've latched onto. I think for many of us, we have to walk through a clear understanding of what is the gospel. What is it that we professed? Is it Christ alone through faith alone? Or is it a gospel that is contrary to what this person, this inspired writer has been teaching us all through the book of Hebrews? Is it a gospel where it's part of God and part of me? Is it a gospel that is part of God 99.9% but 0.1? Is that right? You're a project manager. He measures glass. We've got Mike in here. You know, my measurement right? My percentage is right? Is it 0.1% of my free volitional will that is the gospel? You see, for many of us today in the church, we have to get this figured out first. And oh, when you do, friends, he's telling you, Hold on to it. Hold on to this faith. Anything that comes along and tries to challenge that truth, anything that comes along to circumvent that truth, you need to be aware of it and not let it steal from you this precious gift of Christ alone through faith alone. So the duty we see here is very clear. Hold on to that faith. You have a responsibility to hold on to it. You, you, you've received that knowledge. Someone along the way in your pilgrim journey has pointed that out in the Word of God or through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You've, you've come to that in the, in the truth of your study of the Word of God. Now you have a responsibility in order to persevere to the end against all the pressures that are going to come along in your Christian life to maintain that truth that you hold. Hold on to it. Don't let it get it out of your grasp. And notice, he says that's the manner in which you're to do it. Do it without wavering. This means without doubting. Become settled that that's truly how you are made right with God. If you're in here today, and as we've been going through the claims of the letter to the Hebrews, that it's all of Christ, and it's all based upon His blood, that it's by faith alone, if you're not settled on that, then it's your responsibility to first get settled on that. But, oh friend, once you get settled on that, don't, do not be the Christian that's tossed to and fro by every YouTube video that you watch. It is a settled fact, amen. It is based upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. My heart breaks for people 
And I know a dear brother, I believe he's sincerely covered by the blood of Christ. But it seems like every other month he is caught in the waves back and forth, doubting whether or not it's really on Christ and Christ alone. And all I can do is just keep taking him back to the word, taking him back to the word, taking him back to the word. Christian, you are placing yourself in a very peculiar situation in the context of what we're at in Hebrews 10, of doubting the truth and the testimony of God's word that could potentially, I put brackets in potentially, potentially lead you to apostasy. Don't waver on God's testimony of who Christ is, what his blood did, and how you are made right with him. Don't waver on that. Don't waver on that. Don't dispute about it. Don't, don't, don't do that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but, 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 but stay focused on that because playing around with temptations about how you are truly secured in Christ could lead to apostasy, which we'll see in just a moment. For this first century church, it's very clear by this admonition of the duty and the manner without wavering. In matters of the gospel, the blood-soaked, penal, substitutionary, atoning cross work of Jesus Christ and by faith in Him alone, there are dangers of falling away from the faith. I think this is one reason why when men, this I don't have this in my notes, but um, when men begin to kind of toy around with settled issues of Protestant orthodoxy on how we are justified with God, uh, we should, as the church, uh, get our swords out. I remember several years ago, there was a very influential minister, uh, internationally wide, in the uh, Reformed community and the conservative evangelical community. And he wrote an article. And the article was kind of uh, ambiguous, that's never helpful, right, on issues of justification and salvation. It's a very clear thing. And he was just writing it in a way to where it sounded like it wasn't justification by Christ alone through faith alone, but that somehow it was connected with works and there was an onslaught, you know. And that's good. That's very good. That man should not be tampering with the clear testimony of Scripture of how we are justified through Christ alone, through faith alone. It can lead people astray unto apostasy. Notice the motive that we have in verse 23 to this duty in which we have a manner of guarding it without any doubting. We're to do it because He is faithful that is promised. You know, have you ever thought about that the very attribute of God's faithfulness is the whole premise of everything? If He is not faithful in what He has promised, if He is not true to what He says He will do or that He will grant to us, Friends, then what are we doing here today? He, 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 he forfeits his title, does he not, as God. If he is not faithful, he says one thing, Brother Ann, today, or 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, or if you're you know, a, a, a young earth guy and you go 6,000 years ago in the garden, he tells Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, someday a seed will come and will crush the head of the serpent. And he changes his mind, you know, he is not immutable, and he changes, well then, how can we trust anything? But he's faithful. Jesus Christ 
comes down from heaven. We've been learning all through this epistle to this, this church, these Hebrews in the first century. And Jesus Christ demonstrated himself to be faithful. What is your motivation? What is my motivation? To engage in this New Testament duty, to understand the gospel, to believe the gospel, profess the gospel, and then don't waver in the gospel, despite how I feel, despite what uh, family members may say, despite what some YouTube internet minister may say, or another church may say, I'm not going to waver. What's my motivation? The faithful example of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. There's our faithful example. As they are faithful, brother, we are to be faithful as well in this duty. If you don't believe the gospel, if you're wavering on the gospel, chances are there's not going to be much hope or of you ever being faithful and consistently holding on in the end because you're doubting the promise that lies ahead. He keeps going on here with these instructions for us. And he says in verse 24, now let us consider one another. Another important thing we need to do. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now in the Greek, this word consider, it carries with the idea to perceive one another. But also it carries with the idea, it's a precious thought of understanding one another. And so part of me making it unto the end, I love what he does here. He places me in the context of a local community of believers that's dependent upon one another, but also that I have a responsibility to you to understand, to consider you. But what are we to consider? What's this look like? We're to consider one another's weaknesses. We're to consider one another's temptations. We're to consider one another's... I think we do this one easy. We're to consider one another's physical needs. I think you know, most of us, you know, we, we do that pretty good. We, hey, you know, I said, but I need to go help that brother. But guys, think about the context. I said we need to open our ears and our eyes. Part of you persevering in the end is this duty of considering and understanding the weaknesses, the temptations, the spiritual needs of your other believers in the church. We don't do this to amplify reproaches in one another. No, that's not why he's telling us to do that. And we certainly don't want to do it to ever provoke jealousy or covetousness in in one another. Um, We seek to understand one another's story. That's one of the best things I'd love to do when I meet a Christian for the very first time. I said, tell me your testimony. I want to hear your story. Because it brings glory to Christ, number one. But it helps me understand you. It helps you understand me. It'll help you understand as I'm talking what my weaknesses are as a Roman 7 man. What your proclivities and weaknesses are. And therefore, it helps me to better come alongside of you as a brother or sister to do what? Consider you as you're considering me and exhort one another. First, we see in Scripture, Galatians chapter 6, that we need to be taking care of ourselves. And then elsewhere, we know we need to be attending to the speck in our own eye before pointing out the spinner of our own eye. So we can't misabuse this gospel duty to consider one another and exhort one another if we're not taking care of of ourselves, right? I mean, that's just blatant hypocrisy. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm searching for an illustration here, you know. If, um, if, if, If I see something in Mike's life 
But I'm guilty of the very same thing and I come to try to exhort and consider Mike in that way. Well, it's not going to go very far, is it? Mike's going to be thinking in the back of his head, well, you know, Brother Doug, that might carry a little weight if I saw you taking care of it in your own life first, right? And so that causes us to remember the wisdom that's given to us in our duty of considering and exhorting one another that comes from 1 Corinthians 4.20 where it says that the kingdom of God is not in word only, but it's in power. Brothers and sisters, the best way to really help one another is by our own example. It's by our own example. Our own example will incite. That's what the word provoke means. It will incite. It will excite one another unto love and to good works when you're doing it. And we know this just in our marriages. We know this in our family dynamic, right? You got the, the doomsday gloomy pessimist. That's not exciting me a whole lot or provoking me to love and good works. It makes me just want to give up, right? And, and, and so it goes also in the Christian church. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased. Now we're put together in this covenant community of believers in the new covenant arrangement. And we excite one another best when we're leading by example in the power of the Spirit. Not word only. Not word only. Now, think about that for a moment. You intimately are, in a way, duty-bound to live a life in such a way that will affect your brother or sister in the church, in their perseverance under the faith. That's the context we're at here in chapter 10. As Americans in the West, we have fallen into a very bad way of thinking that, you know, uh, yeah, what I do, you know, it's between me and God. And uh, what I do, it, it's not going to affect Sister Maria. It's not going to affect bro- Brother Grizz. Uh, what I do in my own personal life, is going to affect him. Oh, it will affect him. It will affect one another. Because you see, as you, the world, the flesh, and the devil are three arch enemies in this life we have to live in the new covenant, where we're called to engage, to do these things, hold fast, consider one another, provoke and excite one another, as those things grind you down, and as those things, if you allow them to, 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 to uh, make numb the reality of who you are in Christ, in, as we're understanding here in the context of chapter 10, as that occurs, every time I look at you as another brother, I'm going to see someone like uh, Eeyore, you know, and Winnie the Pooh, just gloomy, defeated, etc. And, 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 and that's going to affect me. Now, you could say, well, that, that ought not affect you. Well, that, if you think human societal relationships work that way, then you haven't learned anything since you were a child. Um, it will affect you. It will affect you. If, if I see you not having any zeal or love for the truth of God's Word, that's not going to provoke or excite me to have a love or truth for God's Word. He's placing you in this text in a community not isolated by yourself. I think that's what I'm trying to get across. We see this one another responsibility we have to each other. He says, and he goes on, and gives us in verse 25 another example, an important one, not to forsake the assembly of ourselves 
together. Now by this, it's obvious that there was some kind of problem here in this first century church to where they were forsaking themselves from gathering together and it was a contributing factor that would lead to them apostatizing, which he's going to address beginning in verse 26 down to 31. So there was something that was connected to the warning he's going to give in verse 26 to 31, and it was associated with them not assembling together. Well, how does this look? Well, in the first century, them assembling together looked at times very private. They'd get together, just a couple people, and they would pray, they would talk, they would sharpen one another, they would exhort one another, they would confess to one another. Um, That's what we see in the pattern of the New Testament. And then there were times where there were larger gatherings, such as we're doing here today. And what the writer's doing again is linking you to the body of Christ as a means by which you are diligently to observe in order to not drift away. It's the precious gift that Christ has given us as part of his scheme in John 17 to keep us while we're in this world. Now, with that comes, does it not a sense of awareness to when someone's not with us, who usually is with us? Dear friend, when when a sheep is not grazing in in the good pasture and they're not present, every single one of us in here ought to be concerned. We ought to be, especially in the day and age, I'm pointing to my phone here, we live in today, I mean a text message, um, you know, a Bible verse, uh, a something. We should, we should be concerned when there is no connection with that person who is forsaking themselves from the assembly because remember, if we're considering their weaknesses, if we're considering their temptation, oh, we long, do we not, to draw them back closer to their profession by a simple phone call, through an email, or what have you. Brothers and sisters, do you have that heart for one another? Do you possess that heart for one another? Now I'm going to tell you one of the the, the quickest things that will cause any one of us in here, even the best man or woman amongst us in here, to begin to become indifferent to the importance of what we're seeing here in the new covenant, evangelical duties. That's the good works. That's the old language, evangelical duties. You don't do it to get saved. You don't do it to remain saved. You do it because you are saved. You look at these things and you love the brethren. You're concerned about the brethren. You're you're wanting to understand your brethren. And when they're not around, you're reaching out to your brethren. One of the quickest things that will make you and I indifferent to this vital task of keeping us together as disciples of Christ, understanding the hell we have to face in this world, is when we allow sin to deter us from the cross of Christ and begin to doubt the truth of the gospel itself. Because one of the quickest signs of someone not caring about someone else is that they've given up themselves. If I think the war's over it. I mean, if I think that there's no battle still going on, dear friend, I'm not encouraged to call you as a fellow soldier to make sure, sure you're still in the front lines and you got your gun loaded. No, what, what's the point? 
It's this sense of apathy that can overcome us in our Christian life. I'm into you. I've, I've fallen into this ditch before. I'll get into the Christian experience is what we're talking about, right? You, you get into a valley, not calling nobody, not really concerned about nobody, because I'm barely getting through it myself, right? And so nobody's hearing from me. Nobody's seeing nothing from me. Well, that's a chain of terms. You know, Brother Doug used to do this and send this. What's, what's going on with him? That's an indication to you of something's going on. Throw the lifeline. Throw a prayer up. I don't mean to say that irreverently, but lift up that brother or sister in prayer. And oh, beloved, how we all need to hear this. Amen? How we all need to take this to heart. Because our own experiences testify to us that this basic fundamental Christian life steps that he's talking about is so true and so needed. Well, we're to exhort one another, verse 25 outlines us as an important means to persevere through the faith together as a communion of saints, not forsaking connection and assembly with ourselves together personally, but, uh, uh, but also just like, like I mentioned a minute ago through talking on the phone. Um, staying together, assembling together. We see here that also we're to exhort one another, warn ourselves and one another of the dangers of backsliding, put ourselves and our fellow Christians in mind of what God has given us through Christ to watch over one another, to be jealous of one another. What I mean by jealous of one another is that we should fervently, jealously love one another and anything that could potentially take a brother or sister away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and guard it as if it was ourselves. We're to exhort one another that way. I remember we were helping a family move and uh, there were some Mormons, I think I've told the story before, that came up and I saw them coming a mile away. I knew they were. And this, 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 these, these, these babes in Christ, you know, I, I jealously guarded them. I went and engaged this woman. Don't ever come to this house. I never want to see you come to this house. These people are Christians. They are not Mormons. They're not interested in becoming Mormons. You see, we have a jealous love for one another in that sense. There has to be a word of balance here, I think, given with this command with exhorting one another. I, I, I think I mentioned a little bit ago, like if I was to come to Mike and I got a beam in my own eye. We're exhorting one another in gospel truths, okay? We got to be careful of getting all up in each other's business on secondary issues and exhorting one another because then you're going to be creating a culture in a church to where there's this, uh, if, if you don't use the same, you know, wheat to bake your bread, then somehow or another you're not following this thing that your conscience is convinced of in the Old Testament and you're in sin. You don't, don't, that's not that kind of exhortation he's talking about here, you know? Or if your shirt's not made of a certain fabric or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can just imagine. I've heard stories of where this happens. You exhort one another in the gospel message that's being talked about in Hebrews 1 through 9. Stay anchored to Christ. So stay balanced in your days. You have a duty of it, but you're not the Lord of my conscience. I'm not the Lord of your conscience. You get the point here. Stay balanced in our exhortations. Unfortunately, it seems as though in some circles, there's more ex exhortations in the secondary issues than there are the main issues. They don't even want to get grounded and settled in the gospel, the true gospel, which we are to exhort one another in. And they want to exhort, control, manipulate in all the other areas that really have nothing pertaining to your salvation. 
he mentions here something interesting of why this is so important in verse 25. Look what he says. Do this. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You are concerned for one another as the manner of some is, but exhort one another and so much the more. This is pressing. As ye see the day approaching. As ye see the day approaching. We'll get the historical context just very quickly here. The, new, the first century church, these are Jews. They're Hebrews. They come out of Judaism. But they're under the oppression of the Romans. They don't control hardly anything. This writer saw the day approaching. He could see the handwriting on the wall, which would come in 70 AD. The day was approaching. Basically, he's saying, look around. The day's coming where God is going to judge Judah. He's going to judge Jerusalem like He has always said. We've just crucified the Messiah. We have rejected His Messiah. This minister of the gospel who's been laying out all the redemptive history for them and comparison the old covenant to the new covenant, this inspired brother knows that the day is coming. God is faithful. He is going to do what He says. And He has promised over and over again through the prophets. We're reading through Jeremiah right now. What did He say today in Jeremiah 35? I will pour out the evil upon Judah that I have pronounced. This inspired writer knew well the day was approaching. And why was he trying to excite them as the day was approaching when God would pour out all of His vengeance, His covenant wrath for their disobedience upon Jerusalem? Because there were many, read the history of Josephus, there were many who were ethnically Jews who were Christians. And he's saying, prepare yourselves. Don't forsake the assembling with yourselves. God's about to pour out His wrath upon Israel. And oh, you need to come together. You're going, that's going to shake you up. That's going to really cause you to think that God has abandoned us. The remnant was going to be challenged in moving forward as a new covenant community while God has just annihilated all the other covenant arrangements He made with them before. The day was approaching much more than you need to pull together. Well, we're not first century Jews converted to Christianity. How will we apply this? Well, very simply, as we look around, do we not see handwriting on the wall? Really, brothers and sisters, today, larger culture is trying to convince us that people, little boys and girls, need to decide their own gender? The day is approaching. What day approaching? I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to get into a bunch of... I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this. It sure looks like the words of Jesus look true. They hated me and they're going to hate you. You speak for me, they're going to hate you. You testify to light and truth, they're going to come after you. So all the much more, the church ought to be waking up, beloved. We ought to be pulling together, understanding these truths that we need to be concerned for one another. We need to be connected with one another. We need to be watchful for one another. Because when everything hits the fan, I want to make sure that you have my back and I have yours. Amen. I want to know that while I may not be able to depend upon my extended family, I want to know that I can depend upon my blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes. All the much more. Take heed to these instructions that he was given this first century church. All the more. Christian living in the Western culture that's becoming more and more distanced from the morality of God. All the much more. Take heed to your responsibilities, my responsibilities, our responsibilities to one another and being prepared 
for when that happens. The day is fast approaching. You could apply that, of course, I have in my notes, to all of us are going to approach a day to meet death. That's a, that's a day we're all going to be approaching at some point. Every time you go to a funeral, you know that possibly you're the next one. You're next in line if you have an average life. So you can apply that a lot of different ways. But specifically here, he's talking about the day approaching that was going to come in 70 AD. Now, here we go, a shift in the text, okay? Here we go. There's a shift in the text in verse 26. When he begins... Well, let me introduce it this way. We have to have a context reminder before we go into 26 to 31. And you know what? We're not going to do it. Because I just looked at my time, there's no way we're going to be able to get through this. I don't want to rush this. Let's do this. Let's set up the context, and then, and then we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a recap next Sunday. But he's getting ready to shift, as we read through the, through the chapter earlier, He's getting ready to shift, talking about willful sin, talking about no more sacrifice being available, and the wrath of God. And so let's just have a context reminder where we're at here as we kind of come to a close. He has pointed them, beginning in chapter 10, chapter 9 specifically, but even so, first part of chapter 10, he, very, in a very focused way, pointed them to the atoning blood work of Jesus Christ, didn't he? That's why we started at verse 12 today. This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It was once and for all. It was finished. So that's the context. He did that. And then what did he do? Beginning with verse 19, he showed us these are the dignities and the honors and the blessings you have in Christ. And then what did he do? He said, hey, here's some practical fundamental steps that you need to engage in as a new covenant believer in this once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order to withstand the onslaught of the pressures of pointing you away from Jesus or attempting you to apostatize. That's the context. The gospel, your profession in the gospel, a realization of the pressures that's going to come against that profession and tools to help you persevere, to believe in that gospel, And now you have the warning. So friend, what's the warning pertaining to? All sins? No, one sin. Walking away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so from 26 to 31, he is going to give them among the soberest warnings recorded in the New Testament. We dealt with it in chapter 6 when we were there. And we saw there that it was definitely talking about changing or altering the gospel of how you're justified. Now we come to the second most sober warning in all the New Testament, written to a a professing Christian community. Let the context demand and have the amplification of what the warning is against. And we'll unpack it more next week. Because there has been many Christians who have allowed this text to shake their foundation in the gospel that he has preached from chapter 1 all the way up into this point. Instead of coming to the ever-flowing fountain of grace and the blood coming from Calvary, a misinterpretation of this passage in 26 and 31 has actually deterred the Christian into a state of despondency which has the high risk if they're lingering, remaining, to lead to apostasy. And so that's the context. So in closing here, what have we been observing all through the service, beloved. We've been observing 
the Christian experience, the reality of the experience. And we've come and we've kind of hit the reset button that the Christian life, once we've been brought into the covenant community, Jesus Christ as its mediator, this wonderful covenant of grace, the, 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 the steps, the basic steps are really simple, aren't they? Watch yourself. Hold fast that gospel that you believed and you professed. Oh, that gospel when you lay prostrate unto repentance of life, knowing you did not deserve any good thing. And Jesus and His blood was the only hope that you could ever have. Don't ever let anything rob that from you. And then afterwards, as you're watching yourself, love your brother and sister. Seek to understand them. Pray for them. Connect with them. You're not a Christian by yourself. You, you, and I'll say this, we have to be careful, and this sometimes has to be said, I'm not saying this to incite that there's a problem in this church, but I've seen this in some communities. You're not a Christian only within your Christian family. You're a Christian around other Christians who are sinners who have been saved by grace. And in so much as you exercise your evangelical good duties to them, and they receive that and it's reciprocated back to you, we are made stronger. We are encouraged further. Oh, and how the prayer of Jesus coming back to John 17 will be made sure. And how will the Father do it? He will do it through His church in which His Spirit is operating to preserve every single one of us unto the end. You will not get to the end by yourself. You will not get to the end with just you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's what we're seeing today in Hebrews. You will get there first by the blood of Jesus Christ, secondly by the empowerment of His Spirit and dwell in your heart, and thirdly with other Christians. So let us thank God, friends, as I opened up the service today, that we have a place that we can come to. And I know I don't uh, consider you probably as much as I ought to. Uh, I, I, I know that I, I don't exhort you. Perhaps Well, you probably say, well, Pastor Dale, you exhort us a lot. But you get the point. Uh, but friends, I do believe, I say this with sincerity, that I'm part of a Christian community here to where there's an openness to foster and more develop this type of biblical pattern we're seeing in the New Testament. Do you believe that? I hope that you feel in this room that we really love one another and that we're open to hear from one another because it's a precious thing, beloved. You know, in some churches right now, I I sense that I have your attention, but you know, in some churches right now, there are some men who have forfeited the, the wonderful gift they have. There's some men and women right now looking at their watches And they can't wait till church is over because they can't wait to get out of church. And I I don't want to be sounding all critical and everything about people that maybe got some errands run. Somebody's in here thinking right now, oh, great, Pastor Doug just said that, and I got to meet someone. Uh, Don't take it the wrong way. I'm just saying, friends, I don't know if you're aware, but that is some cultures and some gatherings. That's not the culture we see here that he's admonishing us to develop and foster in this first century church. Amen. And so let us give God thanks. We have much to sanctify in as, as a church. We have much to improve in a church. But friends, I do believe because of Christ and the truth and our commitment and our profession to His gospel, I think we have the basics. 
So let's utilize the basics we have, amen, and be thankful for them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, O oh God, we thank you. We thank you for the really simple outlining, Father, of your instructions for us as your people. And Father, we thank you that you give us your spirit to uh, excite and provoke within us, Lord, a sincere desire to, to want to do these things. And Lord, in the same sense, we confess to you our limits and our weakness, our tiredness, our fatigue, our weariness, our complacency, our at times, Lord, apathy. And God, we ask that you would stir us up to see the real importance here in this text. Uh, help us to see, dear Lord, that as we, Lord, seek um, and understand our greater dependency upon one another, that, oh, it's for our own well-being. Oh, the gift of your, your bride, the gift of your church. Lord, we thank you for it. Uh, we know and we understand that it's a vital means that you use in this communion of the saints, Lord, to help us when we are downcasted, to perhaps bring us down when we are haughty and, and thinking pridefully. Lord, uh, help us, we pray, uh, to be and to live as we're described in the Bible as part of the body, as living stones in this spiritual temple that exists here in the world while our Savior, we know, we trust, we believe, we confess, He is sitting at your right hand and He is interceding for us and He is using His church to ensure that we persevere to the end through the sanctifying of the truth of your word. Help us to be led. Help us to be fed. Help us to feed others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.